Last week we talked about the phrase, live not by lies. So we want to follow up on that as we're going through our experiencing God emphasis. And we come to um, um, the part uh, of the emphasis. Now, we, the, the first half of the emphasis is kind of laying the foundation. The second half of the emphasis is now putting it into practice. That's where we come to this idea of being in sync. In 19, uh, I'm not going to give you the date. Long, long time ago in a land far away, I was the drum major for the Northwestern High School Marching Band in Springfield, Ohio. Not some of you knew that. <laughs> and, I, and so on, on Friday nights at the football game, the band would begin in the, vi the visitor end zone, and they would begin to march out, and as the last row, as the last line hit the field, I would come flying through the middle of the field, strutting in my white drum major uniform with the tall hat and the staff in my hand, and I would, take, I would come out to the 50-yard line, I would throw my baton in the air, catch it, salute the visitor team, and then lead the band down to the, the other end zone where the flag was for the playing in the national anthem. And I would stand at salute as they would play the national anthem, and then I would um, turn to the band, Give the whistle command, the baton command, or the, the staff command, and depending on the formation, they would turn around and go back to the 50-yard and leave the field. It worked every time because they followed the plan, and they followed my whistle, and they followed my staff. But suppose one week at the end of the national anthem, as I turn around to the band and I give them the command, instead of doing an about face, they just continued to walk forward. And no matter how many times I blew the whistle and gave the command, they just continued to walk forward until they, they left the field on the other side and just kept continuing to walk into the parking lot until the conductor ran out from the stands and, and was able to stop them and get them to corral back to the stands where they were supposed to be. That would be a breakdown, right? What if after all of that, the conductor and I gathered the band members around and said, you're supposed to follow Herb when he gives the command. And as one, they would respond, but we did. And I would look at the conductor, the conductor would look at me and say, as, as if we hadn't heard correctly, let, let, let us state this again. When you hear the command, you're supposed to follow Herb. You're supposed to do an about face and march off the field behind him. And as one, they would say, we did. And my, the conductor and I would look at each other again and go, are we talking in a language that they understand? And we would say it again, when he gives the command and when he blows the whistle, you're supposed to do an about face. You know what an about face is? And they all nod their head, yes. You're supposed to do an about face and follow him off the field. And they say, we did. But they didn't. But they believe they did. 
It didn't matter because they didn't. And the vast majority of people in America who claim to be following Jesus Christ are doing the exact same thing. They are saying they are following Jesus. They might even believe that they're following Jesus. But when they hear the whistle and they see the staff command, they're not following. And that's what I want to talk about today because that's what happened with Jesus and the crowds. Many of them would say, yes, we'll follow, we'll follow. And Jesus kept trying to convince them, no, you don't know what it means. This comes as we look at the uh, fifth and sixth realities of our, our emphasis. The Christian life is about being in sync with Jesus, living in step with his spirit. And so we talked about living not by lies and that truth is the reality. Truth is reality. It's not just a set of beliefs or, or um, information, but it's the reality that we're living in. So far, we've looked at uh, the first reality is that God is always at work around us. And if you are a part of the learning communities, you've seen people draw this diagram that I think really does a good job of providing a picture of what it means to follow Jesus. Number two is God pursues a continuing love relationship that is real and personal. And that it's God that takes the initiative and he's always, and then number three is that he is inviting us to become involved with him in his work. So it's not just a nice devotional relationship, but it is a partnership, which leads to God speaking. We have to hear what God is saying in order to know. And so in the picture of the marching band, we have to be able to hear the whistle and we have to be able to see the staff command in order to know what to do. Number five, God's invitation for you to, invitation for you to work with him always leads to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. And so in learning community this past week, Last week's daily times together, we talked a lot about this crisis of belief, this decision point of belief, that when God says something, we come to that fork in the road. Am I going to believe that God is who he says he is, as David did, as we were talking with the kids? David believed who God was. That was, that was the primary issue. He believed who God was and who, what his power was, what his purposes were. Are we going to believe that or are we going to follow what we think is right? This week, we're going to be starting down the road towards number six. You must make major adjustments in your life to join God. The marching band had to make a major adjustment, and that major adjustment was a 180. It was an about face. It was going the opposite direction of where they were facing as they they played the national anthem toward the flag. An about face in order to follow the drum major. So these five units, these final five units in our emphasis is going to build on what we've learned in order, and focus on doing what God says to do. And the action that we have to take is major adjustments to be on God's agenda. Turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Page 809 if your Bible is one of the pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at um, several passages from this section in Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 23. 
this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So the, the scripture in Luke chapter 14 is an echo of what we're going to see at the beginning, at, at the end of Jesus' ministry. Now it's going to echo what Jesus had said at the very beginning. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, these people find, them, people find themselves um, being exposed to Jesus that in a very short time, he's captured the imagination of the Israelite nation because he's been healing every disease. He's been um, uh, doing miracles. He's been casting out demons. And he comes on the scene announcing with this message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repent is a 180. Do a 180 in order to go into my kingdom. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by the demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. In other words, from all over the place, they're gathering on Jesus. They're hearing about this. They're bringing the sick. They're bringing the demon possessed. And, and he has captured their imagination. And, and, and then he goes up on a, a, a hillside and he begins to teach them. And in, it's called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He begins with the radical teachings of the Beatitude. Blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. And he gives these radical teachings. And then he tells them a radical identity. They're to be salt and light. They're supposed to represent who he is. And then throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he gives them radical teaching after radical teaching, stating it, you have heard that it was said by the Pharisees, talking about the Old Testament, that it was this way, that you should love your friends and hate your enemies. And he says, but I tell you the truth. You've been following the wrong way. Now you need to do a 180 and love your enemies. And so it's topic after topic after topic. All of these radical teachings, every one of them, turning on their head what they knew. And then he comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. You want to turn over there? And he gives four life-altering about-face challenges. After all of these radical teachings... It's, it's as if he's, he's, he's laid the foundation. Now, all four of these kind of have the same theme, and that is you must make a 180-degree turn if you're going to follow Christ. You can't keep going the way that you're doing and just add God to the mix. They had all of those radical teachings, and so when we come to this, it's like an epilogue of four choices that they need to make to adjust their lives in order to be Jesus' true followers. And I, and I want you to not only hear Jesus' words, but hear his heart, because his desire is for them to experience God. Their des his desire is for them to make the 180, but which is going to require them to deny themselves and go the opposite direction, because that's what they were made for. And that's true for all of us. When you hear these, hear Jesus' heart, as well as his words. Number one, the first choice is to, we, you have to choose the hard path with the few rather than following the easy path with the many. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. 
Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So after he's done all the healing, all of the miracles, he's done, he, and, and he's going to continue to do those, he turns the, to his disciples who are gathered close, the 12 that are gathered close, and then additional disciples that, that, that are farther away, but they're hearing him. And, and he's trying to make it clear that this is not the easy way. This is not just God giving you what you want. This is making a 180. This is doing an about face. Because he says, our default is to take the wide way, the easy way. That's our default. That's what we want. Nobody wakes up in the morning going, I hope I experience really hard pain today. Right? That's not our default. But what we need to be is waking up and saying, Jesus, whatever you want today. If that involves pain, I accept it. Our default is the easy way. And he says, by living the hard way, taking the narrow gate that not many will, will walk through, and by taking the hard path, the difficult path, he says, you're going to be among just a handful. Even among those who say they're following Christ. It's a picture of denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus. Setting aside all that is not of Christ. It's, it's about living not by lies, but by living by the truth. And so he says, only a few will find it, which means being in the minority always results in criticism by the majority. And he's laying the foundation. Are you willing to take that? Choose the hard path with the few. Number two, the second choice is choose Christ-like leaders to follow. Choose Christ-like leaders to follow. Now, as I was studying this passage, um, I guess I never really spent a lot of time in this part with the idea that Jesus, this is in the context of, it's the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and so it's like Jesus' manifesto, and it's the epilogue, it's the, it's the end, and, it, and it's a part of four different challenges of doing an about face. And so I found it really interesting, and then as I began to think about it, pray about it, I realized that it makes a lot of sense. Um... Because God has created us to follow people who are in leadership. In the family, we grow up, we look to our parents. In, in, in throughout the Bible, what we see is God appointing leaders to represent him so other people can see him. In, in fact, and it just works that way in life. If you're skilled at something, if you're really, really skilled at something, most likely it's because you were apprenticed or somehow mentored by someone who was also skilled in that. And if it didn't happen, it took you a lot longer to figure it out than if you had had that leader. And so throughout the Bible, what we see, God appointing people. And, um, and so the Bible is explicit that there are going to be leaders that you follow. In other places, it just assumes and so in the context of doing it about face, he makes this statement. Beware of false prophets 
who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So he says, take the hard and the narrow way. And then he talks about leaders. Be careful who you follow. And so the choice is to deliberately choose those who are following Christ, those who are representing Christ. Now, here's what's interesting is because of the first command uh, or the first statement, only a few will follow the hard way. That means in the context of leaders, only a few leaders, relatively few leaders who claim to be following Christ will actually be doing it. That's sobering, isn't it? Because there's, and, and, it's, and I think he makes such a big deal out of it because when we turn to Christ, we want to believe that people are telling us the truth. And so when we hear someone, we automatically accept what they're saying instead of being discerning. And that, so, and, and, and look at chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing in other words, they look good. They look appealing. They look like they're right. They look like they're one of you. But he says, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In other words, their purpose is to get what they can get that will benefit them instead of serving you. How do we do that, he says. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And the answer is no. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And, and I wonder if Jesus in, in his mind wasn't um, also thinking in the, in the terms of John 15, one of our early memory verses, where he's the vine. He's the vine. He's the one that has life flowing through him. And we're the branches. And so if we have the life of Christ, and so, so he, when he's talking about a vine and branches, that when he's talking about health, he's talking about the Spirit of God flowing through them. So every healthy tree bears good fruit. Every, every person that has the Spirit of God flowing through them is going to bear good fruit. But the diseased tree, the ones that don't have the Spirit of God within them, they have the opposite. It's a selfishness and a sinful nature. They're not going to bear good fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. But not right away. That's why he says, be discerning. Look to make sure the people you're listening to and following look like Christ and are producing Christ-like fruit. And that's the way you'll recognize them. And so false prophets in the Old Testament, a false prophet was someone who claimed to have a word from God and then it didn't come true. So they claimed that God was doing something, going to do something, promised to do something, and that didn't come true. And in the Old Testament, it, there was this, there was this um, command. If, if a person is a false prophet... If they say something and it's not true, kill them, stone them, because they're representing Almighty God and they're leading people astray. And that is one of the most serious sins of all. 
we move in the New Testament. And because of Jesus' commands about loving and caring, and we want to believe the best. But there are times when we have to set aside believing the best and say, does that person sound like and look like Jesus? Is what they're saying actually true? And especially people who predict the future. Now I'm going to meddle. There are some people on the radio. There are some people that are writing books. There are people that are popular in culture that are saying things that are going to happen, and it doesn't happen. That's the criteria for a false prophet. And he says, don't follow them. We are so easily deceived, except by the discernment of the Holy Spirit living in us. Because they look like sheep, right? They look good on the outside. Um, I hate not to believe the best about people. I just hate it. You know, I want to believe the best about everybody. And, you know, it's got me into all kinds of trouble over the years. <laughs> but that, uh, and, and, because it's, you just want to hope. You know, you just want to believe. But Jesus is saying, no. No. Look. And what are we supposed to look for? Christ-like character, Christ-like behavior. He says, if you see... Uh, now, one of the problems we have in our culture, too, is we look at results. We, we, we look at results that we like. And so if a person is, is gathering lots of people, we, we, well, they must be following Jesus, right? Well, no, Hitler gathered a lot of people, too, didn't he? So gathering a lot of people, that's not the criteria. Well, they are eloquent. Well, that's not the criteria, either. You know, there are a lot of people out there that can get our Pied Pipers and get people to, you know, and they sound really good, but they're not following Jesus. So what's the criteria, he says? Good fruit. Good fruit. What is good fruit? Christ-like character. That's where it starts. Christ-like character. And, and part of our problem in our culture is we can be so distant from those people up there that we don't know how they really live at home. We don't really know how they really treat people. Um, yeah, there's a lot. Christ-like character. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 26. I put it in your outline for you. He says, the fruit of the Spirit. Notice, the fruit of the Spirit. He says, how do we know if someone is really um, representing God? By their fruit. Here's the fruit of the Spirit, Spirit of Jesus, living in a person, will produce this. Love, doing what is best for all concerned. Joy, peace, patience. Joy. So love, joy, and peace is kind of these inward qualities. And then, the, and, and then he moves to things that you can see. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. They're dependable gentleness, self-control. There's a big one. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. There's, there's, there's at the crux. It's the 180. We've set aside our natural desires, crucified the flesh with all its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us be in, in sync. 
Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So he says, beware of the false prophets. Look for their character and look for their behavior. What are they producing? Are they, what is it that Jesus produced? Christ-like followers, right? He was, he was intentional about helping people to know God, to love God, and to love other people, and to live lives of love, live lives that reflected him, to create people who were salt and light and were willing to sacrifice anything in order to follow him. That's what we need to look for in leaders. That's what we need to look for in the people around us. So when you're reading books, when you're watching, when you're listening, do a little research. What's that person really like? And then pay attention. Don't just believe everything that you read. Use your discernment. Hey. Because we become like those we follow. We become like those that we listen to. That's just human behavior. So we need, we need to be listening and paying attention to people who are like Jesus. Third choice. Choose God's agenda in obedient relationship. God's agenda. Another 180. Our default is to, uh, when we come to God, to want to do something for God. That's our default. That's a, and, and, I, and I've heard people in Christian circles teach that um, you need to have a, a big vision for God. You need to come up with a, a, a long-term plan to accomplish great things for God. The Greek word for that is baloney. <laughs> or maybe worse. Or malarkey. Or we can think of a lot of words for that. Because that's, that's human. That's, that's applying um, secular business practices to the church. Right? To set our eye on what we think is good and ask God to join us and help us do it. And then there was a, there was a book when I was growing up called God is My Co-Pilot. No! He's the pilot. Right? We're the co-pilot. So here's what he says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Again, he's just come out of that whole teaching on the false prophets. The people who are saying, they're verbalizing. The, it sounds good. Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So it's not about getting God to join us on what we're doing. It's about discovering what God's will is, allowing God to reveal it to us, and then joining him about face to follow the conductor. On that day, many will say to me, and, and this, is the, this is one of the most profound parts of all of this. Lord, they will say, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I declared, I will declare to them, I never knew you. He doesn't even contradict them. So they may have been saying good things. They may have been even casting out demons. Who, I don't know. Jesus didn't say whether they were or, not, or they weren't. But they had the appearance of doing it. He says, that's not the criteria. But in our humanity, in our default, we, we are drawn to the spectacular. 
right? We are drawn to that which is, seems supernatural. We think, well, God must be with that person if they're doing those incredible things. But Jesus replies, says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why? Because we go back up to verse 21. They weren't doing the will of my father. They were doing things, but they weren't doing God's things. Just like the marching band. They were still in, the, in this imaginary scenario because they always follow me. I mean. All right. Actually, they would, I, I was... I was unnecessary because they, it was all formation. You know, they were, I blow the whistle. They do what they already know they're supposed to do. So I wasn't really leading much, just blowing the whistle. Where, how did I get on that? Where was I? They never knew you. So they never knew you and they weren't doing the will of the Father. So they... They, you know, people are just continuing to march forward. They were in formation. They were playing their instruments perfectly. They were doing everything that a band should do, except they weren't following the leader. And that's what people do sometimes. So Jesus says, not your agenda, God's agenda. The about face is to choose God's agenda. And then he goes into detail about doing that. Number four, the fourth choice is to choose God's truth as foundation for all things. So how do you know? How do you know what God's will is? Well, part of it is a relationship, an ongoing love relationship that is personal or real. It's, it's so um, in, that, in that last one, I never knew you. I, I didn't have a relationship with you, and you weren't doing my will. Two things. You, you didn't have a relationship, and you weren't doing what I wanted you to do. And so choosing truth as the foundation for all things. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27 says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. What's the rock? Back up to verse 24. If you hear these words of Jesus and you do them. You hear them and you do them. You hear, that is we learn God's truth and we do. We live God's truth. Verse 26 and everyone who hears these words of mine, notice, they know them. It's not that they don't. It's not that they haven't heard. And does not do them. Will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. In several different places in this epilogue, he says, and great was the destruction. Great is the destruction. Because if you don't do an about face, you're headed toward an eternity in hell. And great is the destruction. So it's not that they didn't know. They heard. He's laying out pictures of what it looks like to do an about face and live kingdom living. He's laying out pictures of what it looks like to put our head in that yoke that we talked about a while ago. And to be in sync with him. He's laying out pictures of what it means to be in step with him. 
And he's laying out pictures of what it means to, to live knees and nudges, where you start every day surrendered and praising God, and then you just follow him as you go through the day. He's, he's laying out pictures of what it looks like to surrender and listen and obey as a lifestyle. It's all about the 180. It's all, it, it's, he's laying out pictures of what he announced at the very beginning. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, turn around, 180, do a 180. But then he acknowledges as he's going all through his ministry, very few will actually do that. Oh, they'll listen, they'll participate, they like the music, but they're not going to turn around. They'll look good on the outside, but they're not turning around. And so he says, here, we need to hear God's truth. It requires deliberate effort. The crowds didn't accidentally show up on a hillside to hear Jesus, right? They had, it, it made effort. And it doesn't, it, um, and living God's truth is a 24-7 deliberate determination of obedience. And so when I ask you during the prayer time to, to put your hands in your lap, saying, I surrender everything, Lord, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do, I'm willing to surrender whatever you want me to surrender. That's the lifestyle. Amen. Right? It's just, it's turning around. And what we discover is that as we do that, we experience the pleasure of God. Amen. He that plead, he who wants, and, and that Hebrews verse, that, that was our memory verse last week, it, it talked about pleasing him. Right. If anyone wants to, well, How's, how's this start? Hebrews 11, 6. Um, come on, somebody memorized it. <laughs> it completely, the first word left me. Any, therefore, if anyone desires to please God, please, please God. Right, please God. And then we end up pleasing him. And we see his smile and we experience the joy and the peace and all that he provides for us. But we don't get it unless we deny ourselves. And that requires the 180. And that's just hard. So the four choices to do a 180, the narrow gate and the hard path with the few, being willing to endure the persecution and the criticism and be different. Following leaders who are Christ-like in character and behavior, which takes deliberate discernment rather than just following what sounds good. Mm -hmm. Being on God's agenda in obedient relationship instead of following our agenda and asking God to be a part of it. Amen. And then the foundation of learning and living God's truth rather than just hearing God's truth. It's interesting to me how often in media, politics, and the stuff that you hear, people are quoting scripture. <coughs> but they're quoting it out of context. Mm -hmm. And they're using it for their own purposes. Amen. So what happened? This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 28, Matthew 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. He, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They were astonished. They were amazed. It was Jesus. He was the son of God. There was power to it. 
And then began the trek of the next probably two and a half years of people following Jesus with their bodies and with their minds and even with their hearts at times. But their souls weren't doing an about face. And it seems like if you re- as you read through the Gospels that as the crowds began to gather, every once in a while Jesus would turn to them and said, you know, if you really want to follow me, and then we give them some really hard teaching. They go, oh, that's too hard. And then they would leave. And then the next crowd would gather. And it's like his whole ministry, he was trying to wake them up and say, you got to do an about face. You don't understand. I'm not going to feed you forever. This is about following me. And I believe that that's the condition of our culture. There are a lot of people who claim to be following Christ. Now, where the rubber really meets the road is for us to stop thinking, yeah, those people out there need to have a reality check. And for us to be submissive to God and say, God, am I not making these choices in any area of my life? Because we are so easily deceived, right? And, and you, if there's anything that comes out of my mouth that is not correct, right. you need to have the Spirit of God inside of you, discernment, coming to me and saying, Herb, is this really what you meant? Right? right? Because it's not about me. It's about God. It's about His Spirit. It's about His teaching. It's about His way. And we are so easily deceived. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothes, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. An about face. Every day, surrender, listen, and obey. Would you bow your heads? Are you listening to the whistle? Are you watching for the staff command? Are you regularly saying, Lord, Show me any place that I'm not on your agenda. Any place that I'm not thinking right, seeing right. And then are you listening to really pay attention? Following Christ demands the best of us. And it's only by surrendering and listening and obeying, allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work within us, that we can do it. So Lord Jesus, I pray that you would take the words that we've looked at today and you would lodge them deep in our souls to transform us. Lord, do whatever it takes to get our attention. When we're distracted or, or whatever might be in the way, do whatever it takes to get our attention and, and lead us to make the 180 every time. 
I pray for us as a congregation, Lord, that you, as a group, you would keep us focused on you. You would keep us doing the 180 in, in a culture that sometimes is just hard to do. But that we would be your church in greater and deeper and stronger ways and that your Holy Spirit will flow through us. That more and more people will come to know you in truth, not just in word. That we could be your shining light. We could be your salt. We can be your aroma. Lord, whatever it takes. We give ourselves to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.